We started this podcast as a simple commitment between Casper and me. Once a week, we would sit in a room and treat Harry Potter as sacred, even if no one showed up. Now, we have 70,000 listeners we never could have imagined. We also now have Maggie, who makes sure that all of our local groups feel supported. We have Megan, who makes sure that we behave with integrity in the world. We have Chelsea, who produces the women of Harry Potter. And we have Ariana, who makes sure that every episode, every live show, everything we put out into the world is done to the highest possible standard. We make sure that we pay all of them a living wage. We are trying to be the change we want to see in the world. We are trying to only use fair trade merchandise products to give health care to all of our employees and pay time off. We are trying to save in order to plant a tree for every flight that we take. And we cannot be the company that every company should be without your support. With 70,000 listeners and 1,300 supporters on Patreon, that means that 2% of you support us on Patreon, and we are so grateful for your support. But we want to make it 3% of our listeners who support us on Patreon, which would mean 2,100 supporters. For $1 a month, you get an extra few minutes of bloopers. That's $1 a month for the feeling of being in the top 3% of our listeners. That level of success would even make Hermione happy. So join us. Be part of the top 3%. Join Casper and me in that room that gets more and more filled the more of you show up. We are so grateful that you are part of this community. I'd have sat in that room with Casper alone gladly, but I love having you here. Chapter 17, The Four Champions. Harry sat there, aware that every head in the great hall had turned to look at him. He was stunned. He felt numb. He was surely dreaming. He had not heard correctly. I'm Casper Terkyle. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Vanessa, we're only a couple of weeks away from our live show in Western Mass. It's on Thursday, March 8th. Tickets are on sale, harrypottersacredtext.com. If you have friends or family who live in the upstate New York area, in Connecticut or Western Mass, we'd love to have them visit. So send it their way. But if you're not in the Holyoke area, but you want to spend time with us in addition to this podcast, we're really excited about a couple of podcasts that we have been featured on recently. There's a new amazing show called This Movie Changed Me, which is hosted by our friend Lily at On Being. And every week it's a different guest talking about a movie that has shaped their lives in some way. And I'm the guest next week talking about the greatest movie in the history of the world, You've got mail. I was going to guess Citizen Kane. No. <laughs> got mail. I totally agree with you. It's fantastic. Nora Ephron, man. Oh, so good. And Lily Percy, the host of this podcast, is just incredible. She's the best. She's yeah. the best. So if you like thinking about popular culture and its meaning, this might be a fun podcast for you. And Vanessa, you were recently on. I was on Tell Me Everything last Sunday. And my mom called after she listened and was like, I loved this. And then I listened and it's because the two hosts compliment me. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, of course you loved this, mom. So if you want to check out those podcasts, tell me everything. And this movie changed me. We hope you enjoy it.
And we just want to say a few words at the top of this episode that Vanessa's story today is about the U.S. gymnastics team and the sexual assault cases that have ensued. And we'll be exploring some of the questions that that leads to in our conversation. So if that's something you don't want to listen to, do skip forward through to our sacred practice halfway through the episode. So as many of our listeners, I'm sure, know, a couple of weeks ago, Dr. Larry Nasser had a very public sentencing hearing. Dr. Nasser was already put in prison a number of years ago and sentenced to 30 years to life for having a lot of child pornography on his computer. And since then, he has been accused of sexually violating hundreds of young women who do gymnastics in the United States, the top, top gymnastics athletes in the United States, under the guise of medical treatment. The sentencing hearing got national attention because the judge allowed all of the women who wanted to speak to directly speak to Dr. Nasser and allowed these to be televised. And a lot of the stories were about the great impact that these sexual violations had on their lives long term. But one of the things that was so remarkable to me was how oceanic this voice was of 150 women standing together. But of course, it didn't start like that, right? Most notably, Rachel Denhollander spoke up several years ago. And because she was the only person who spoke up, she was not believed. In fact, not only was she not believed, but her personal life was violated. People started talking about her sexual history. There was an attempt to discredit her in an aggressive way. And she just had such a singular sense of purpose that she kept speaking up. And I just want to read to you, she wrote a beautiful article in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago, an op-ed piece. And I just want to read to you one quote. She says, in many ways, the sexual assault scandal that was 30 years in the making was only a symptom of a much deeper cultural problem, the unwillingness to speak the truth against one's own community. And I think that What Rachel is really speaking to here is one voice in face of a community. And it's just easier to believe multiple people. You would see multiple parents and multiple children go in and out of this office. And so you had to say all of these people are ignoring something in order to believe Rachel. And what turned was by Rachel speaking out, other women were like, oh, this happened to one other person. It's not just me. I'm not crazy. And they felt comfortable speaking out. And now, of course, there is no doubt that this was true because 150 women, and it's actually over 200 women total, just 150 who were willing to testify, have spoken out. And, you know, we chose to read this chapter through the theme of unity. And I think a lot of what we're going to be talking about is the lack of unity once Harry gets picked as one of the four champions. But it just really highlights to me how powerful unity is. One person speaking out, speaking truth to power is so important, but it's nearly impossible. But the only way that it can transfer from important to impactful is if other people unify against them. It takes more than one person. And so I'm really excited to speak to you about the power of unity today, Casper, and celebrate people like Rachel who are the brave ones to come forward. Wow, Vanessa, that's such a powerful story. And I I love that transition from important to impactful and the role that unity plays in that. It's not that a singular voice is not important, but how we have impact is when when we are believed and we are believed when we, sadly, not always when we're alone, but when we're together. Thank you for sharing that story. 
Casper, as the chapters get longer, I feel like you and I need more unity in recapping. It's true. It's hard to cover it all in 30 seconds. Right. So why don't we see what you do, and then I will follow up. I got your back. I love this collaboration, not competition. Yes. Are you ready? I'm ready. On your mark, get set, go. Okay, so everyone is freaked out. Like, why is there a fourth champion? Harry is, you know, his face is just, (gasps) and he has to walk this, like, long kind of walk of shame-esque across, you know, the the long tables, not on the tables, but, like, through the tables to the room in the back where all the champions are. Then there's the five judges, um, and Snape is there being, like, and and, and Dumbledore's kind of looking weird. And as he walks, like, Hagrid isn't smiling. You know, everything's bad. And um, Crouch is there, and he says, no, you have to compete. And then... And um, Ron says, like, oh, you always do this. I'm not going to talk to you anymore. Well, Vanessa, that uh, leaves plenty of work for you to do. Are you ready? Yes. Here we go. Three, two, one, go. Madame Maxime and Karkarov are like, I would have submitted more people if I would have known that Hogwarts was going to get two champions. And Fleur de la Cour is like, he's just a boy. He can't. And Harry is like, I really didn't do this. And Snape is like, yes, he did. And Moody is like, whoever wanted to do this um, obviously wanted to kill Harry. And that's so smart because he's the one who wants to kill Harry. And for some reason, the head of Hufflepuff house isn't back there. But Snape is. And that's really confusing to me. And yeah, Ron's not speaking here. Can we do the rest of the episode with this little French accent? <laughs> He's just a boy. He's just a boy and have beautiful villa air. <laughs> Vanessa, one of the first moments that we really see unity broken is this walk of shame. Really, it's a moment of real isolation where the whole school has been wrapped around Cedric as their champion. Here he is. Isn't he wonderful? And then suddenly that unity is ripped apart because Harry is then named as a second Hogwarts champion. Yeah, and I think that the moment that it really becomes clear that he's not going to get anyone's support is when he walks by Hagrid. Right. And he's just sort of sitting there staring and doesn't nod or do anything. And so I feel like that's the moment where Harry realizes, like, there will be no unity behind me. The unity that Harry does not see at all in this chapter is somebody asking him what he thinks really happened and actually caring about his story and his desires. What really strikes me is everybody's talking above his head. Everybody is theorizing without him. Gryffindor, who does unify behind him, doesn't care that he didn't actually put his name in. Right. They refuse to believe it. You know, the twins are like, you didn't tell us that you ended. How did you do it? And, you know, they wrap a flag around him. And there's this kind of like, he's a figurehead. He's a champion around which Gryffindor can unify. But it doesn't feel like unity because it's based on a lie. Right. And they don't they don't want to know the truth, right. right? Which I feel like if I were Harry, I wouldn't feel like people were unifying around me. You're unifying around this idea, sort of a nationalism in Gryffindor. It's not actually about Harry. Absolutely. Well, and what's so interesting throughout all of this is that Harry, even though he's protesting and he's saying, I didn't enter my name, you know, nobody believes him. And it re- really resonates with the story that you shared at the beginning. Like he, his agency is so minimized by everyone else's projection onto him. And I think this is one of the questions about unity is to preserve the sense of togetherness. We wash away individual difference to the point where we miss complete 
truths and stories that would help us be better if we listen to them. You know, I was thinking about this a lot this past weekend with the Super Bowl. The beautiful thing about sports is the unity of fans right. coming together and people across all sorts of differences are like, but I love the Eagles and you love the Eagles and that's all that matters. But then the problem with that kind of unity is that you are ignoring the violence that's happening right in front of you or the corruption that's happening right in front of you in order to have that unity. And, you know, the conversation that I get in a lot with people is, is it worth it? Right. Mm. And often unity can bridge across difference. And so what can become invisible are things that should be invisible, right? The fact that it shouldn't matter that you and I come from different right. places. Like, we're we're two human beings and we have a common goal. But it also makes invisible things that do matter and that shouldn't be invisible. Exactly. Exactly. I feel like there's two types of unity and they're based on different things. There's one which is, a, I would say, kind of like a shallow example. And I think of like big corporate retreats where you have thousands of people who all work for the same company and they come together for a couple of days and like everyone's like, yay, marketing department, yay, we have Q4 goals of X amount of growth and like, yay, we all have this mission. But like even when you're there, it feels fake. There's just something that's inauthentic about it. But you could say there's a unity there versus, on the other hand, like a community that has struggled through difficulty together, that's listened to each other's most true stories, and that has really dealt with difference and challenge, and through that is grounded in something much deeper. Like, that's the kind of unity that I, I think we should be aspiring to. It doesn't hide difference. It works through it. So I'm just thinking, I'm thinking of moments of real unity, you know, like around the civil rights movement, right? When people cross the Edmund Pettus Bridge together, right? I don't think that necessarily they all knew each other's deepest, darkest secrets. But by showing up there, you knew something about each other, which is that you were willing to risk your life and risk going to jail in order to fight for voting rights. And that was all you needed to know about each other. That was essential enough in that moment. And then if they were to run into each other at a coffee shop, I don't think that, like, necessarily that same unity is there. I think unity can be just in a time and a place, and then it can evaporate. I love that. And I love that's another way of kind of splitting the unity pie of saying, well, what are you unifying around? Because this is one of my biggest frustrations around the concept of unity in the Anglican communion, which is the Church of England and all other kind of Episcopal and Anglican churches around the world. Unity is this central virtue. Unity gets really placed above anything else. And there's a big difference right now in the Anglican world around different social norms around ordaining women and LGBT people. And in countries like the US and the UK, where, you know, gay marriage is now legal, that's a very different context to Nigeria, for example, where homosexuality is still certainly not something that you condone in public life in the, in the same way that, that we do. And so because there's an unwillingness to kind of split the unity which is so held, you can't get married as a gay person in a church in England. That's a Church of England church. And for me, I'm just like, this is where we're putting unity above the rights, I would say, and actually the dignity of people which just feels so damaging. And so when we place unity at the front of our virtues, we can only go as fast as the slowest person. And this reminds me in the chapter, you know, there's a number of people who have the opportunity to break the unity that's gathering around them, the momentum that's gathering around this process of having a fourth champion, totally unexpected. Dumbledore doesn't break it. But I would say even more importantly, Crouch Senior is specifically asked, you know, what are the rules? What should we do by Kokoroff and Maxine? And he says, we must go on. Like, we have to stick to 
the agreement. We must stay, you know, unified with the plan. And I feel like that's a failure of his responsibility. He should say, no, this child is underage. We agreed one champion per school. Like, no, stop. I think that this gets to something that we talk about a lot, which is that priorities often need to shift on a moment's notice, right? It's I am here to represent the rules, but, you know, the higher rule is that we said that no one under the age of 17 is going to compete in this competition. And the way that it's discussed, it seems like there's some sort of magical bind that, like, something high risk and terrible would happen if Harry didn't compete. But I'm not sure why Harry isn't encouraged to sort of like go and then take a knee and just lose every match or something. And there seems to be some sort of unity to a higher ideal that's more important than humanity. And I just, I'm trying to think of moments in my life in which I think that that's true. And to me, like, I just can't see being unified to anything else than trying to save, especially a child. And so I don't understand what Dumbledore is about in this moment. And it's just so disappointing to me. And I think that we can see a lot of beautiful things in what they're trying to do. They're trying to honor tradition. They're trying to honor the Ministry of Magic. I mean, I think we saw that in Hillary Clinton's most recent memoir. She talks about deciding with Bill as to whether or not they were going to go to Donald Trump's inauguration. And they really did not want to go. And George W. Bush also really didn't want to go because of how Trump had treated Jeb, his brother. And so they got on the phone and they were like, look, out of loyalty to the presidency and out of a sense of wanting to maintain the dignity of the office – former presidents and former first ladies go to the inauguration. And I don't think that that was wrong of them, right? I do think that there are moments in which in order to preserve a norm, you should unify with that above yourself. And so I'm wondering if that's what Dumbledore and Crouch are trying to do here. Right. But with the inauguration, a child wasn't going to die in dragon flames. Yes. And that seems like an essential difference. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Quip. Harry Potter and the Sacred Text listeners, I don't want to scare you, but three members of the Not Sorry Productions team have recently lost a tooth. Now, none of this was because of bad brushing. It was because of accidents that happened. But I am concerned about people who love Harry Potter and their teeth. Quip's electric toothbrush can help you in your routine of keeping your teeth healthy and sparkling clean. The mirror mount for your Quip toothbrush puts brushing front and center in your bathroom, so you'll remember to bookend the day using your new brush. The built-in two-minute timer that pulses every 30 seconds to remind you when to switch sides and help you clean your whole mouth makes sure that you brush for the entire two minutes. The multi-use cover is amazing, it works as a stand, and also helps with sanitary reasons. Brush heads are automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule of every three months for just $5. A friendly reminder as to when it's time to refresh and stay committed to your oral health. Please, this is a public service announcement from somebody who has all of her teeth and who loves a lot of people who have recently lost one tooth. Brush your teeth. Quip makes it easy and fun to brush your teeth, and that is why I love Quip and why it's perfect for getting back into a routine after the summer. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to 
com slash Harry Potter right now, you can get your first refill pack for free. That's your first refill pack for free at G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash Harry Potter. My brother and sister-in-law have a fig tree, and it makes me sad because I live 3,000 miles away from the fig tree, and I love figs. I think they are like proof of a higher being. Now, I resent them less because due to Fleur's amazing Hanami scent, I get to smell like the fig tree. They make stunning, non-toxic perfumes and they list all of their ingredients online. You get a good scent made with clean ingredients. And the sample process is just good old fun. Here at Harry Potter and Sacred Text, we actually got to put together our own Fleur sample set filled with our favorite scents. So if you're not sure where to start, make sure that you check that out. And definitely try to smell like my brother and sister-in-law's fig tree with the Hanami scent. Then when I meet you, I'll love you more because you'll smell like home. Go to Fleur.com slash Harry Potter today to check out our curated sample set and get 20% off of your first custom Fleur sample set. That's P-H-L-U-R dot com slash Harry Potter to get your first three Fleur fragrance samples at 20% off. Fleur.com slash Harry Potter. Casper, I have a question for you. Uh Why is Snape in this back room? Oh, because he has a great burn. (laughs) Potter's been crossing lines since the moment he arrived, which is hilarious because he crossed the age line. He's been breaking rules. He's been crossing lines. I just think it's really funny. Okay, sure. I You think he ran back there just because he was like, I have a burn. Yeah, I think he's been planning it since he found out. Here's a theory that is like maybe nice to Snape, which makes me uncomfortable. Is his feeling unified with Lily? Is he trying to get Harry out of the tournament? He's sort of the only one really advocating for Harry to not be in the tournament. You are blowing my mind. And I wonder if this is like unity to Lily. He's like, no, Harry can't compete. I'm supposed to be saving his life and he will die. I know that he is not that good of a wizard. (laughs) That is really interesting. Because why else is he back there? This is like none of his business. McGonagall is there. Dumbledore is there. I don't understand where Sprout is, but fine. I wouldn't understand why else Snape would think that he belonged back there. Well, I also wonder, is he there to keep an eye on Karkarov? Something has gone very strangely wrong. So I think he suspects Karkaroff and wants to keep a close eye. Yeah, it just occurred to me, you know, I always thought that Snape went back there because he was like, oh, Potter's trying to be the center of attention again. But I really think that he might be back there to keep an eye on Karkaroff to try to figure out what's going on and maybe to protect Harry. I do wonder, Vanessa, if we should distinguish unity from loyalty because I really resonate with what you're saying about Snape and Lily but that feels like it's a relational thing like this loyalty to her and a sense of duty well unity I don't know it feels like you unify not around a person or or a relationship but more around a shared goal in some way yeah I completely agree with that I just think potentially now that Lily is dead the goal is to honor her life Mm. right and that what he's constantly thinking of is trying to honor her life and her sacrifice let it go severus Uh, (laughs) i mean don't let it go if he's the only person in that room who's like worried about harry dying that's true mcgonagall is back there and she seems to be concerned but she is not asserting her voice 
I think she's suffering from like Anglicanitis because she's like, okay, well, Dumbledore has made a decision. I'm not going to challenge that, certainly not in public. And so I will stay unified with the institution that I'm part of rather than what she usually does, which is take responsibility for the children's safety. Yeah. I will say that something that I see adults do now that I am one (laughs) is I often see people who have authority really not realize that they have it. And so in moments of confusion, just sort of default to not great choices because it's like, well, I don't want to make this worse and I don't really understand what's going on, right? Like Dumbledore is like, at the end of the day, this is Barty Crouch's, you know, or Bagman's decision. And Crouch is like, well, at the end of the day, rules are rules. Like there's almost a bystander syndrome going on here where everybody assumes that somebody else is going to step up. And there's so many adults in the room that nobody stands up as the clear voice who's like, do you know what? Shut this down. I don't care what the rules are. We will appeal to the highest court. And I really just think it's like nobody is stepping up and taking a leadership role. Vanessa, the real sad moment in this chapter is that, you know, we've seen so much connection between our trio, Hermione, Ron and Harry. And Harry is enduring all of this sense of isolation and disconnection throughout this chapter and is going to come home. Finally, he manages to break away from the Gryffindors, goes up to the room and expects to, you know, have a conversation with Ron. Expects to, like, fall in the warm embrace of his best friend. And Ron is like, you could have told me. It's this painful break where... It feels like a much deeper pain than even Hagrid, than even Dumbledore, certainly than the rest of the school. Like this intimate connection where he's not believed or it seems like he's not believed. When unity is that deep and it breaks, it's so much more painful. Yeah, and it really seems to just be based in Ron's insecurity. If Ron really thought about it, he would know that Harry wouldn't leave him behind, but he doesn't want to think about it. He wants to pout about the fact that Harry gets more attention than him, that the twins are more charming than he is, right? That he's like constantly lost. This is about Ron. But I do think that Ron and Harry's relationship thrives the most when it is about unity and not loyalty. When they have a shared goal, (sighs) they have a much easier time being loyal to one another. But when it's only relational, I think that often their insecurities come out in these really bad ways. That totally shifts how I read book seven. That's brilliant because although they have a goal, it's so abstract and so difficult. There's no guidance that all they have left is their loyalty. And that is not enough to keep Ron in the picture. Certainly not when he's hungry. We know that's true of all of us. Vanessa, it's time for our sacred practice today, and we are doing Pardes, the four-step Jewish reading practice. And I'm going to find a sentence at random, and that sentence is, I'm sure that should be good enough for everybody else. Ooh, McGonagall says that about Dumbledore. That's right. Just step right into that shot, which is the first step. What is happening in this passage? Like, what's the literal meaning? So Dumbledore has just said that he believes that Harry did not cross the age line. 
And McGonagall's like, if Dumbledore believes Harry, that is good enough for everyone. So McGonagall's sort of defending the authority of Dumbledore against everybody else. Super juicy. Okay. Oh, this is fun. So the shot is that that kind of literal reading on the surface level. The next level is Remez. So this is where we're going to take a moment and I'll read out the sentence again. We're going to both think of one word that we really resonate with and try to think how does that link not only through this book, but through the rest of the books. So let me read it one more time. I'm sure that should be good enough for everybody else. Is there a word that stands out to you? Yeah, the word good. <gasps> me too. What? Where, where else do you remember good showing up? This whole series is about fighting between good and evil. And like Harry is supposed to be, Harry and Dumbledore are supposed to be sort of like the beacons of good. And then Voldemort is the embodiment of evil. And McGonagall is sort of taking advantage of that idea in this moment. Like Dumbledore is supposed to be, right, like this embodiment of goodness. And so it's like if Dumbledore says so, that should set the tone for good. And I think that that is why we see so much loyalty for Dumbledore and at times too much loyalty to Dumbledore mm. is if you have one person embody good, then you don't get to see the complexities of them. The other place where I'm thinking of the word good is in Luna Lovegood's name. Like, it's in the name. You know, Luna is wonderful, and she's actually one of my favorite characters. But certainly with her father, I think we see that good is sometimes not enough. Like, there's no strategy behind the goodness. And there's actually some foolishness even in the good. And so I'm wondering if there's something insufficient about goodness. Yeah, Dumbledore's word isn't good enough, and McGonagall's good intentions aren't good enough, right? The road to hell is paved with good intentions, and we also need good strategy. Exactly. And Dumbledore is right that Harry didn't cross the age line, but he's not right that some big magical thing had happened. Exactly. There is actually ill intent in this. And so this is a disappointing moment of McGonagall. Vanessa, it's time for our third step, drush. And this is where we try and imagine, okay, is there a meaning in the text? Is there a snippet of wisdom that we want to share? And we like to ask ourselves, if I was going to preach a sermon on this snippet of text, what would it lead me to say? I'm sure that should be good enough for everybody else. You know, the meaning I'm finding here is that I'm not sure this is good enough for McGonagall. I think she's externalizing her own doubt onto everyone else in the room. And it makes me think that when we are the harshest critics of other people, you know, why isn't this good enough for you? It probably is saying something about ourselves that we should be giving closer attention to. I think for me, I would preach a sermon on taking a breath in moments of chaos. So much is going on. And McGonagall is like, do you know what? Let's all believe Dumbledore. When really what everybody needs is like 30 seconds of silence to reflect on what's going on, right? So many power struggles are happening. There's just so many different dynamics at play. And I think that if there was just 30 seconds of quiet, they would see that there's actually something very simple happening here. A child's life is being put at risk that should not be put at risk. And I really believe that sometimes just in moments of chaos, we just need to like stop and breathe and be like, okay, what is actually going on here? Nice. The final 
and most mystical part of Pardes is the search for the Sod. And it's less really a search. It's more of an opening to the arrival of the Sod. The Sod is the secret. And so this is not a logical thing that we're looking for. It's not really even the meaning in the text that we're looking for. It's a completely... Uh, received insight about life, about the text that comes to us. So I'll read the sentence one more time, and perhaps a sod will arrive, perhaps it won't. I'm sure that should be good enough for everybody else. Yeah, the secret that arrived for me is that whenever I say I'm sure, I think it means that I'm not. How people often say the opposite of what they mean, right? I'm just thinking of like, Whenever a man interrupts me, he always says, I hate to interrupt, but... And it's like, well, you obviously don't hate to interrupt because there you go. And so the secret that emerged to me is to pay attention to when people are saying things that are actually the opposite of true and when I say things that are the opposite of true and what's actually going on. Hmm. What about you, Casper? Did a sode emerge? No. <laughs> I don't think it did, Vanessa. I was looking at the shapes of the letters. <laughs> I always find that fascinating. There's moments when I just look at a letter and I'm like, who decided that that was going to be a P sound? <laughs> Today's voicemail is from Alex, and she's returning to the episode we had on trauma and shares some of her story, which does include some tough topics. She also brings a really insightful reading from Prisoner of Azkaban. The voicemail's about four minutes long, so if you do want to skip through, you're welcome to do that. But we invite you to listen as much as you're comfortable. Hi, Casper, Vanessa, and Ariana. This might be a bit of a longer voicemail, so I apologize in advance. So I just finished listening to your episode on trauma, and it's inspired me to tell a part of my story that I haven't really felt brave enough to truly share before. It's not directly related to this chapter or even to the Goblet of Fire as a whole, but it's very centric to Harry Potter. A little over four years ago, I was violently raped by someone I had trusted very deeply. I'm not going to delve into that because that's not the part of my story I like to focus on. Due to my sexual assault, I fell into a deep depression. I began isolating myself from my friends and family, stopped caring about everything I loved, like school, all of my passions, and my relationships. I felt trapped. I felt so trapped, in fact, that I had resolved at one point to end my life. I had slowly amassed a pile of pills that I was 99% certain would kill me. I remember sitting on my bed with the pills in my hand and tears running down my face. I felt like all hope was lost. When I was sitting there, I had this really, really odd notion to read Harry Potter. I know it sounds crazy, but it was suddenly something I desperately needed to do. I picked up the nearest copy of any Harry Potter book, and it happened to be The Prisoner of Azkaban. I thumbed through the pages and ended up at the scene where Remus Lupin is telling Harry Potter about the Dementor's kiss. The quote that struck me so deeply as I was reading this was, quote, You can live without your soul, you know, as long as your brain and heart are still working, but you'll have no sense of self anymore, no memory, no anything. There's no chance of recovery at all. You'll just exist as an empty shell, and your soul is gone forever. Lost. End quote. It dawned on me as I sat there reading this passage that I'd read a million times before, that he was not just talking about the Dementor's kiss. He was talking about his assault, the werewolf attack that transformed his entire life. 
He was talking about the freedom that that had took from him. He was put through something he never asked for and never once deserved. He lived with a stigma surrounding him for being a werewolf and just for being the recipient of a very vicious attack. Despite all of this, despite everything he had to go through, all the names, all the stigma, all of his shame, and all of his trauma, he survived. He lived with this every single day, and somehow he persevered. He ended up finding love with Tonks, he found friends in the Marauders, and he found life every single day. He found a reason to keep living, no matter what it was. He kept living. I found my will to live again that night because of Remus Lupin. I found out that even though Remus is a fictional character, I was not alone in this world. Other people have had these experiences, and they had survived. And if they could survive, I could too. I just wanted to offer a blessing to anyone who has been, is going through, or will go through trauma in their lives. I truly hope that you can find healing and that you know you're not alone. Whether you find your saving grace through the Bible or Harry Potter or anywhere else and it may present itself, your experience is valid and you are strong and you're a survivor. Thank you so much for this podcast and thank you for allowing me a chance to tell my story. Bye, guys. Alex, thank you so much for that amazing insight about Lupin and also for sharing your story. We really appreciate it and Anybody who furthers our understanding of the text so that we can use it in our own lives more and models how to do that so well. I mean, you just really deserve our gratitude. So thank you. And I really appreciate that in the episode and on social media, I think more and more we're sharing stories with each other as a listening community to to help each other be brave and to heal together. So thank you for modeling that, Alex. Casper, we now get to bless somebody. Who would you like to bless this week? My blessing is for Cedric. This is a huge moment for him. He's been chosen as the Hogwarts champion. He's been honored with this great role to represent his school. And he's been totally upstaged. And that feeling of like, you know, when you've done something and you're supposed to get praise and attention and you don't, feels so annoying. And so I don't see Cedric being in any way you know, negative about what's going on. He's not nasty to Harry. Can you imagine if the other champion had been Draco or something? So I feel like he acts like a gentleman in the midst of a really difficult situation and doesn't center himself in a way that, you know, is undue or or unfair to anyone who feels like they've been upstaged or overshadowed for no reason. But, you know. That their co-host has a cuter British accent. (laughs) A blessing to you. Thank you. What about you, Vanessa? I'm going to give a blessing to Fleur. She is the only female champion. And, I mean, she's already been called out. You know, like, Bagman walks in and is like, gentleman and lady. And it's like, you know, dude, we don't need to be separating her already. Just say, like, students or people or nothing. I don't know. I just think it's hard to be the only woman in any situation and to be the only female athlete competing against men. We're going to see that it's a real challenge for her. And in this moment, she's just exuding confidence, even some contempt for Harry. And yeah, I just want to honor awesome female athletes. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or leave us a review on iTunes and send us a voicemail to harrypottersacredtext at gmail.com. Do you think our listeners have noticed that we dropped Tumblr? Shh. 
Also, you can check out Vanessa and I on different podcasts at This Movie Changed Me and Tell Me Everything. Next week, we'll be reading Chapter 18, The Weighing of the Wands, through the theme of glory. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text for a Change was produced by Ariana Nettleman, Casper Turkile, and me, Vanessa Zoltan. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are part of the Panoply Network. You can find ours and other great shows on panoply.fm. This week's voicemail was thanks to Alex Wood. We'd like to thank Rebecca and Charlie Ledley, Julia Argy, and Stephanie Paulsell. See you next week, everyone. Sorry this episode was late. We love you. The The word seven sounds so absurd to me. Oh, I find the word warmth <laughs> super weird. So my two are seven and counter. Like a counter that you, you like chop on. I'm like, why is that a counter? Warmth. Counter. These sounds don't mean anything. Within the Wires is an immersive fiction podcast by Janina Mathewson and Nightdale co-creator Jeffrey Craner. Each season, we unfold a brand new story strictly via found audio from an alternate 20th century. Season four, The Cradle, is a story about a mother and daughter as they attempt to lead a family-centric commune surviving on the fringes of society. Subscribe to Within the Wires at nightvalepresents.com or wherever you get your podcasts.